Christmas greetings to you on this morning. If you're like me, you have received Christmas greetings at the local Walmart and the mall in various forms. Men in red suits, jingling bells, uh, all the various paraphernalia, uh, lighting up houses, and as we call it in our household, the laundromat on the lawn during the day. Those deflated decorations are somewhat depressing. And I heard this week in the mall the question posed by song, what child is this? Did you hear that one this week? Maybe shopping for last minute gifts and every Hollywood entertainer has that question on their lips. It's a fantastic question. What child is this? I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love to give you one. There will be some men who distribute some of these Bibles up front. You can just slip your hand up and say, I need a Bible. Uh, We'd love to put one in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep this. It's our gift to you. Uh, We want you to have the opportunity to be able to read God's Word for yourself. So just slip your hand up if you need a Bible, and these men will come down. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. That's a book in the New Testament. And we want to attempt this morning to allow Hebrews chapter 1 to answer the question, what child is this? Who is this baby in a manger? This baby arrived in obscurity. John 1.10 says, the world did not know him. He arrived largely unwelcomed. John 1.11 says, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. He came as a baby, helpless, vulnerable, weak, needy. There were no rooms available in town, and so he was born in a shelter for animals and placed in a feeding trough. Like any child, he had to grow in strength and in stature. He learned and grew in wisdom, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And as we observe the birth and the childhood of this one, we might ask, what would this baby become? And more appropriately, the real question is, who was this baby already? Unlike any other human, this one arrived. He had existed before. He came to the earth. His beginning was not at Bethlehem. His beginning, according to Micah 5.2, was from long ages ago, even from eternity. This was no ordinary baby. Who is this baby in a manger? This morning, a look at Hebrews chapter 1 will answer this question. First of all, he is the Word of God. Read with me Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, He sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. We discover, first of all, that this baby in a manger is the very word of God. We discover here in Hebrews 1.1 that God is a speaking God. He exists and He communicates. And He spoke in times past to the fathers and the prophets. Hebrews 1.1 tells us He spoke in many parts and in many ways. Think about those parts for a moment. 39 Old Testament books, more than 40 authors over a span of some 1,500 years. And he spoke in many ways, by narrative, by hymns, proverbs, poetry, parables, love songs, wisdom literature, biography, history, genealogy, legislation. At times, God spoke audibly from heaven. He scribed on stones. He sent messages through angels. He spoke by an animal. He gave dreams and visions. But in these last days, the text tells us, God has spoken to us in Son. Literally, the text reads, God spoke in Son. You may notice a, a margin note in your biblical text. There is no His in the original. The text does not say He spoke in a Son. It doesn't say He spoke in the Son. It doesn't say He spoke in His Son. He spoke in Son. In other words, this last form of communication, this final consummation of communication from God is son-like. He's speaking the language of son. This is a son kind of revelation. And in this declaration from God, the giving of his son to the earth, there is a superiority, a finality in this revelation from God. He spoke in the past and many times in different ways. And in these last days, he spoke in son. And this is superior or better. Not because it moves from error to truth as if the Old Testament were wrong. Of course not. That was God's word. But more from incomplete to complete. From that which is fragmentary to that which is pulled together from something like a digital picture with mixing, missing pixels to a portrait filled in, from a message gradually unfolded in many parts and in many ways to a final full revelation from God. You see, with the coming of Jesus as a baby at Bethlehem, we have the closing out of the Old Testament era and the inauguration of what the Bible calls the coming age. It is the culmination and the apex of God's speaking to man. And because we live this side of Christmas, we live in exciting times. Think about the most important person you can imagine. What would it be like to hear from that person? Think of all the people who have ever lived, who would you most want to hear from? The fact that God speaks to us is stunning. He's not obligated to do so. It is a kindness of God to reveal His mind, His heart, His plan to us creatures. The fact that God arrived in person to be His speaking to us is even more staggering. This baby at Bethlehem is God's speech. Notice what the text says. In these last days, God has spoken to us in Son. The prophets spoke God's word. This baby is God's word. 
Secondly, this baby in a manger is the owner of everything. Look at verse 2. Whom he appointed heir of all things. The heir in a household is the preeminent household member who possesses the right of ownership to the household and all it contains. This baby born in a manger is the rightful heir to everything. Psalm 2.8 makes this promise, The nations and the ends of the earth shall be your possession. And here in Hebrews 1, that promise is expanded to everything. The entirety of the cosmos is his. The earth and all it contains. This little baby is the owner of all the cattle on all the hills. And yet, ironically, he was homeless at his birth. There was no room in the inn. He was homeless in his life. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As the owner of all things, he is also the source of all things. He is the giver of all good gifts. Hebrews 2.10 says that for him and through him are all things. And yet we see at his birth, the kings of the earth bring him gifts. Matthew 2.11, gold and frankincense and myrrh. He is the heir of all things. The rightful owner of everything and yet at his birth he needs his mother's milk. He needs swaddling cloths to keep warm at night. We discover thirdly in this text that this baby in a manger is the maker of the universe. Look at the end of verse 2. Through whom also God made the world. This word of God, this son, is the agent of creation. This baby in a feeding trough is the agent by which God created the cosmos out of everything. Listen to Colossians 1.15. By him, that is by Jesus, all things were created, visible and invisible. That means everything in the physical realm, everything you could see and touch, and everything in the spiritual realm. All things have been created through him and for him. John 1.3 says it similarly, Apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. If you see something, if something exists, it is because Jesus made it. The God who spoke the universe into existence is the same God who spoke into his universe and he is the same God who entered his universe at Bethlehem. This baby in a manger is none other than the God who existed from all eternity past and he brought everything into being by his speaking into existence. And we see this power. We see this power on display in everything around us. Everything that exists was made by the Creator God. And we see this power on display in Jesus' earthly ministry. Making wine where there was no wine. Making fish and bread where there were no fish and bread. Making a withered hand stretch forth. Making the lame walk and the blind see. And raising the dead. He is the creator, become man. Fourthly, this baby in a manger is the shining of God's glory. Look at verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory. 
the glory that is radiating out. This is the brilliance of God emanating outward. It is outshining splendor. The God who dwells in unapproachable light. The brilliance of a thousand suns can't hold a candle to the radiance of God's glory. It is blinding brightness. And think about it, this one who is the glory of God wrapped in marvelous light came into the darkness of the earth wrapped in cloths. The darkness did not understand him, though he was the light of the world. The darkness rejected him, though life in him is the light of men. His radiating glory was cloaked. In fact, it was so closely guarded that everyone around him assumed him to be a mere man. That when he did things that identified him as deity in the flesh, sinners took offense. Because the presence of God in the midst of sinful man was a threat to their way of life. Because light was a threat to darkness. Because love was a threat to hate. Jesus was not welcomed. His radiating glory was cloaked and in a few points that shone forward. You think about the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Jesus took up on the mountain with him Peter and James and John and he was uncloaked before them. That is, the, the human flesh was peeled back just a little so that the one whose face shone like the sun radiated out in brilliant glory for those three disciples to see. It was a clue to them that this one they were with was the glory of God incarnate. He will return, not hidden by human flesh, but in human flesh glorified, he will return uncloaked. His face will shine like the sun, his sword will be unsheathed, and a day will come when all the universe will acknowledge him King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen to Jesus' prayer near the end of his earthly life here, John 17, 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus knows that his intrinsic glory the sum total of divine attributes radiating out in brilliant light would be delightful for his disciples. He wanted the best for all who would follow him. And he knows that the definition of eternal life is the enjoyment of God. The enjoyment of being in the presence of Jesus, this radiating glory of God. And he prayed that his disciples would experience it. Fifthly, this baby in a manger is the display of God's being. He is the display of God's being. Look at verse 3. He is the exact representation of God's nature. What is God like ontologically, essentially, in his being? Who is he? What are his attributes? John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God has explained him. Jesus there is called the only begotten God and the explainer 
of the God who is not seeable. Colossians 1.15 describes him as the image of the invisible God. This is why Jesus said to his disciples on earth, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Audacious, blasphemous statements, by the way, if Jesus is not God. Do you want to know what God is like? You look to the Son. We look to this baby in a manger. By the way, the the humility of a baby in a feeding trough in an animal shelter on a night outside of Jerusalem. Unrecognized by the world. Rejected by the darkness. That is not a a cloaking of who God is. It is actually the display of who God is. God in His essential humility and condescension and love is on display in a baby in a manger. This is what our God is like. Sixth, we find this baby in the manger is the sustainer of all things. Look at verse 3. He upholds all things by the word of His power. This is present tense, ongoing, unending purpose of the second person of the Trinity. He is the sustainer of all. He upholds all things. And He does this by the word of His power. The word which is His power. Colossians 1.17 says, In Jesus... All things hold together. You theoretical physicists, listen to this verse. If Jesus were to cease speaking us into existence, we would cease to be. If Jesus were to cease speaking the universe into existence, the universe would cease to be. It is a mystery to science what holds electrons in their orbits and what holds atomic nuclei together. It is a mystery to science what keeps the universe, the cosmos, intact. It is no mystery to the Bible. It is no mystery to those who know Christ. He actively, continually holds all things together. He is the active sustainer of the universe and all that it contains. And the one who has the whole world in his hands, himself was held in the hands of a teenage mother. It's truly stunning. Seventh, this baby in a manger is our substitute for sin. Look down at verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down. Why did he come to earth? Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came to lay down his life a ransom for many. He came not to be served, but to serve. What was his fundamental act of service in coming to Bethlehem, in living a life on the earth? It was also that he could go to the cross. The cross is the real message of Christmas. Substitutionary atonement is the real statement of a baby in a feeding trough. Why did, the, why did the Son of God come to earth as a baby? To be the only one who could have simultaneous solidarity with God and solidarity with man. As Son of God, in full deity, 
He, he has all the attributes of the fullness of God. He cannot sin. He is always good. He does what is just and right and perfect. And as the Son of Man, He has solidarity with man. His humanity was not a mirage. It was not just a costume. Jesus became 100% human so that He could live among us, dwell among us, be a sympathetic high priest with us, and fundamentally so He could experience death. Physical death and the expiration of physical life here and a spiritual death on the cross whereby He became the sin bearer for humanity. Jesus had to become man so that He could be mortal. He was still God so that He would maintain the fullness of deity and justice and rightness. And so He is the only man who has ever lived and not sinned. And when He went to the cross... He hung there, considered as a criminal, considered cursed by God. He hung there as the only innocent one. And he hung there on purpose. Jesus said, I go and I lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me. And I take my life up again. I have the authority to do that. And he went to the cross to become the sin bearer, the just in the place of the unjust to bring us to God. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because God loves sinners and seeks to redeem them, save them from sin and from slavery to sin and from the consequences of sin, from the eternal destruction that sin brings about. Why did Jesus come to earth as a baby at Bethlehem? So that he could go to the cross. Is Christmas about love and gifts and a tree? Yes, very much so. God loves sinners and gave His Son to hang on a tree that we, be, we could be forgiven and have eternal life. Notice what verse 3 says. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down. What is that all about? In the Old Testament, when the priests made purification of sins, how did they do it? There was a long train of sacrificial animals. Various animals who were brought to the altar and their throats were slit and and the animals were placed up on the altar as a sacrifice to God. And They were a symbol, a, a metaphor, a visible, tangible picture of the innocent dying in place of the guilty. But those animal sacrifices didn't actually take away sin before a holy God. They were a placeholder a shadow of what was to come. And when the priests of the Old Testament would slit the throat and offer the animal and and then another parade of sinners came and needed purification of sins, more animals had to be killed and sacrificed and more sinners would come and animals had to be killed and sacrificed. And then the same sinners that were there before came again because they sinned again and more animals were sacrificed and on and on and on. And the priests did not sit down. The the priest would hand over the responsibility to the next priest who would stand and sacrifice and stand and sacrifice and stand and sacrifice and the next priest. And that generation of priests would die and another generation of priests would come and repeat in an endless train of blood 
as a symbol of what was to come. But when Jesus made purification of sins, after he had finished at the cross, he sat. Do you feel the import? What is the implication of Jesus sitting after sacrificing? The work is done. It's finished. His sacrifice on the cross was a once-for-all-time sacrifice for the purification of sins. Friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ and trust His sacrifice, the equation is very simple. It means God forgives sin. Past, present, future. There's no more sacrifice. No more needed. In fact, Christ finished His work on the cross with the immortal words, It is finished. He laid His life down to bring you to God. And to do that, he had to pay for your sins, and he did it in total. This leads to the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice over all other things. Not because those Old Testament animal sacrifices were bad or wrong. No, in fact, they were God-ordained. But they were ordained by God for a time in that pixelated, incomplete era that previewed the reality of of what God did in Christ. Eighth and finally, we see that this baby in a manger is the exalted intercessor. Look at the end of verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The majesty is a reference to God's Rivalless place on the throne of heaven. In a king's courtroom, you don't have anybody else there that's king. But in God's courtroom, where God alone is king, Jesus the Son, who is God, also sits. He sits at the right hand, which is a designation of power and authority, and he sits. If you were to enter the throne room of some earthly monarch, you would not sit. Jesus, having finished the work, sits in the seat of authority, the seat of power, the right hand of the throne in majesty, because this one, this baby born in Bethlehem, this crucified one, this exalted one, is majesty. And what is he doing there? According to Psalm 110, he is waiting He is waiting at the right hand of his father until all of his enemies are placed under his feet as a footstool. Jesus was not a hapless victim at the cross. Some tragic story of history we really wish could have ended better. This was his plan from before time began. To come to this earth, to lay down his life, to purchase sinners for himself, to be exalted to the right hand of his father and wait And a day is coming when all his enemies will be under his feet. And all those purchased by his blood are raised to adopted sons and daughters and are called friends of the king. What else is he doing in heaven? According to Romans 8.34, he is at the right hand of God interceding for believers. If you're a believer here in Jesus Christ, you... 
You know what it's like to be forgiven of your sin and still feel the taint of sin. Still feel a a heart pulled toward things that dishonor the Lord. You need to know, Christian, you need to remember that Jesus Christ sat down after making purifications. He finished the work. You can have full confidence that the forgiveness of sin purchased by Jesus at the cross makes you in a right standing with God. It's done. can never be undone. You can never go from being loved by God in the gospel to losing his love and affection somehow. And one of the reasons for that is this very idea of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. According to Romans 8.34, he is seated there interceding. What does that mean? Well, until we get to heaven, we're not perfect. Until we get to heaven, we're not sinless. And our sins here, covered by the blood of Christ, have an appeal in the person of Christ at the right hand of the throne in heaven. In a very real sense, Jesus pleads his own blood on our behalf, making intercession. God can never be out of favor, or we can never be out of favor with God, because Jesus has purchased that favor on our behalf. He has finished the work, he is exalted in glory, he is interceding for his people. He anticipates the day he will return as reigning king on the earth. Who is this baby in a manger? He is the word of God, the owner of everything, the maker of the universe, the shining of God's glory, the display of God's being, the sustainer of all things. He is our substitute for sin and he is the exalted intercessor. This book we're looking at, the letter to the Hebrews, it's, it's something of a sermon letter. It's striking in its introduction. Most of the letters in the Bible start with the author and the recipients. This just starts with God. It's abrupt. And an exalted Christology. I want to tell you these things about Jesus you need to know. This letter was written to Jews in the first century who had believed in Jesus but who felt the tug and the struggle and the strain of being faithful to Jesus in a world that was hostile. Particularly in Jerusalem, their own countrymen who believed Jesus was a fraud and anybody who followed him was a blasphemer. There was a very real temptation for these first century Jews to revert back to their old life. And think about it, prior to AD 70, the temple still stood There were still animal sacrifices and the priests still operated. You could still smell the blood flowing out of the bottom of the building into the ravines surrounding the temple complex in Jerusalem. There was a very tangible, smellable, audible operation of a religious building with functions. And Jesus had left. Couldn't see him anymore. Of course, he rose from the dead and and was seen by many witnesses, but now he's gone. He's at the right hand of the Father. How do you prove him? There's no taste, touch, see, feel with faith. But what could be seen was this building and all the people in the robes and the machinery of the religion and the operation of the sacrifices. They were now obsolete. They were worthless. But they went on. 
until 70 AD? Could you imagine being a Jew who had believed in Jesus before the destruction of the temple and being disowned by your family, being hated by your countrymen? We find out in this letter to the Hebrews that some had lost their jobs and had their property plundered. Believers in Jesus had been stoned in the city. What would it be like to believe in this one you couldn't see, you couldn't show to somebody, you couldn't prove? This entire letter of Hebrews is an exaltation of Christ, argument after argument that Jesus is better. He's better than what? He's better than angels. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifices. He's better than everything you'd be tempted to go back to. Christian, think about your old life before you knew Christ. Do you ever feel nostalgic about it? You need to remember this baby in a manger, God in the flesh, is better than everything you used to know. Hold on to him. Hold fast. Don't be tempted by the pressures of the world and the distractions of the world and the things of the world and the tangible elements of the world. Don't be tempted to fall away. That's the message of this letter. And I would say to you, if you're here this morning and you've never embraced Jesus as Savior, you've never submitted to Him as Lord, there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He's Lord. But that will not be a day of salvation. That will be a day of judgment. And today you are breathing and you reside on God's green earth. You still have breath in your lungs. Your heart still beats. There is an obligation and an opportunity before you this morning to trust Jesus. To entrust yourself to Him. To trust what He did at the cross to completely pay for all your sins. To set you free. To redeem you unto God. Will you embrace this baby in a manger? This Christmas season. This is why he came. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you that you loved sinners like us. Not when we were at our best, but when we were at our worst. The world in its darkness was hostile toward you. And yet in love you sent your Son. The Western world this week asks the question, what child is this? We pray that it would be answered from your word by Christians who know. Oh Lord, would you give us boldness to speak to our families, to our friends, to this world in darkness that so desperately needs the Savior you sent. And we pray, God, that you would hold us fast while we hold on to you by faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.